A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Abortion, The Body Politic, Part 5. What has just occurred in the United States is unprecedented globally. We have never seen retrogression on this scale in terms of the taking away of a constitutional right to abortion that has existed for 50 years. Today, we're looking outside of the U.S. to find out what the fight for reproductive rights looks like in other countries and how the United States now compares. The United States is now in a situation where it really is an outlier in sense of the global picture. I'm Leia Hochter and I work at the Center for Reproductive Rights. I'm the Senior Regional Director for Europe at the Center and I lead the Center's work to make legal and policy change on reproductive rights across Europe. Only three countries, and now, very unfortunately, the United States, so that makes it four, have actually moved backwards. El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Poland have rolled back entitlements to abortion, uh, but never on this scale. They have done so from restrictive contexts. So they have had laws in place that were already generally globally regarded as restrictive and have then you know, scaled back those entitlements. What the United States, what has happened in terms of the Supreme Court's decision, um, what that decision has done is taken away a very robust constitutional protection for abortion rights and completely decimated that. Globally, the trend is very clear. There is an overwhelming movement and has been for many, many decades across the world in all regions towards the removal of bans and highly restrictive laws on abortion and towards the legalization of abortion, the treatment of it as essential health care, uh, the decriminalization and the removal of barriers in law and policy. And this is the overwhelming trend. It has been the trend in Europe for 80 years. It has been squarely the global trend um, for at least the last 30 years. I mean, in the last 30 years alone, 55 or, you know, over 55, I think actually 59 countries globally have moved towards removing bans on abortion, legalizing abortion and expanding access, expanding entitlements to abortion. We've seen major systemic change in Latin America as a result of the green wave in Argentina, Colombia and Mexico. In the European region, we've seen systemic change in Ireland, in Cyprus, in Belgium, in Iceland. Even just in the last few weeks, major jurisdictions, Germany, France, the Netherlands, all removing barriers from 
to abortion from their laws. Spain legislation is now pending in Spain that will really introduce a range of very important reforms that will increase protection for abortion rights. And these are just a handful of examples. We've also seen major change in African countries, in Kenya, um, in South Africa, and in, in Asia, in Nepal, in India, in South Korea, in a range of other countries. It's not actually possible for me to list every single country in the world that has made progressive change because there are so many. Some countries are now taking protective measures in direct response to the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe. In the days since the decision from the United States Supreme Court, we are now hearing lawmakers in France, in Belgium, in Sweden and Denmark discussing in a very concrete way the reforms they will undertake to introduce constitutional rights protection for abortion rights in their national constitutions. We've seen Finland announce that it will undertake reforms of its laws to improve them, to bring them into line with World Health Organization um, guidance. So while for people in the United States, the situation is very troubling and very grave, what we are actually seeing on foot of this decision in this region in Europe is a galvanization by decision makers across the region who care about reproductive rights to actually begin to stand up for those rights and do something in terms of their own national laws and policies to shore up that protection. With the U.S. now facing a long road ahead, it's about time we turn our attention to what activists around the world have been building. What can the U.S. and abortion advocates learn from the systemic change rippling across other continents. We reached out to someone on the front lines of reproductive rights in Latin America, one of the organizers of the so-called Green Wave. The Green Wave is resistance, is power, is hope. That's what the Green Wave is. So I am Paula Avila Guillén. I am a human rights attorney, a reproductive rights activist all over Latin America. And I am the executive director at the Women's Equality Center. It started in Argentina when um, the La Campaña Nacional por el Aborto Legal y Seguro, the national campaign for legal and, and free abortion, was um, created uh, in 2003. It all started with a symbol. There was this handkerchief. The handkerchief was a green handkerchief. The handkerchief came inspired by the uh, Las Madres de la Plaza de Mayo. There were the women in Argentina that were marching um, uh, to find the kids, their children that were disappeared during the dictatorship. And they will march every Thursday and they will wear these white handkerchiefs around their, their heads as a symbol of who they were. And every Thursday at three o'clock, you will see them marching. Even as of today, they are still marching. At this point, it's not to try to seek their children, but their grandchildren. So it was a movement of resistance, right? This idea that women can come together and resist together. And La Campaña Nacional decided instead of using white, they were using green because abortion is healthcare and green is associated with the color of health. And it started very simple, just with this idea of you will put the handkerchief in your wrist, in your purse. And, uh, and it was a notion when you were on the street of tell, letting know somebody what you were standing for. And that means that you were standing for women's rights. It means that you were standing for health. It means that you were standing for abortion as a healthcare, that you were standing for equality, that you were standing for democracy. And all of a sudden, uh, 
through the work of many years, this small symbol to cover the entire Latin American region and it has to cover the entire world. It also has created changes. In the last two years, Latin America has jumped from being one of the regions with the most restricted abortion laws to being uh, a region that has changed its abortion laws in three countries. Uh, Argentina, that is also the land of the current Pope, just changed its law in December 2020, uh, recognizing autonomy as a, as a right and, uh, and also making sure that health, the abortion was included in health services and were provided free in hospitals for anybody who needed. Then uh, we had Mexico. Uh, through the, the a decision of the Supreme Court, uh, it decided that in order to make it equal for everybody, no women could be criminalized because of abortion access. And the states had the duty to change their laws. And since that decision, nine states had changed their laws. And then very recently, we had uh, my home country, Colombia, that through a decision of the uh, constitutional court recognized that women should have uh, autonomy to decide when and where uh, interrupt a pregnancy if they wish so um, between the first 24 weeks of of pregnancy. And, and that just is something that we never thought that could happen. Mexico is still a very religious country. Colombia is still a very religious country and conservative in many ways. But what we are seeing is the resistance of this movement and, and the, the hope that this movement brings is changing laws. In the meantime, here in the U.S., for women who need abortion care right now and live in states that ban or heavily restrict it, traveling, even outside the country, may be their best bet. I think that there are two things that are important to remember when we talk about abortion in the context of traveling um, outside the United States. The first one is abortion is healthcare, and Americans have been traveling to Latin America for healthcare for a very long time. Dental procedures, some of the best dentists are done in Mexico and in Colombia. They are trained in the United States. They go back there. It's much cheaper. They have all these facilities. The tourism of health is something that exists. Because the United States doesn't have a, a strong healthcare system, they, they already are examples and you're seeking healthcare in other countries. So now we are just adding abortion to one of those services that you are going to be seeking. That is of the same quality and of the same level that you will receive and is sometimes better than many of the states here, like the systems that you, that you will have. But the other thing that's happening is that the women who are in the border in Mexico um, trying to provide these services, there is an amazing leader in Mexico, uh, Veronica Cruz from La Libres, who had created this whole network of people who are willing to just provide abortions to anybody who crosses the border, or even sometimes they cross the border um, to, to provide help. They didn't do it because it was a request for anybody from the United States. They came together, so the Texas law, and say, what are we going to do about it? It's our border. They are our sisters. They are our Latina sisters on the other side. What are we going to do about it? Because as Veronica says, the law sometimes is wrong. And when the law is wrong, you need to find a way to fix it. 
The United States, in this case, it, it's just completely going backwards. It is regressing, and humanity cannot allow that. We spoke to Veronica Cruz with the help of a translator from her office in Guanajuato, Mexico. Veronica started her organization, Las Libres, two decades ago. Las Libres is a feminist organization uh, that was born 22 years ago. And we were born in the right time to fight for safe abortion in a state, Guanajuato, which was the most restrictive for abortion rights at the time in, in the country of Mexico. So 22 years ago, local legislators wanted to put women victims of rape in jail after having abortions. And, and we decided to make a huge fight to guarantee that not only would those women be released, but also to have uh, the law change. So second, we, we did a great job of ensuring safe, free, and legal abortions for girls and women who were victims of rape. From there, we, we started to, to guarantee that all women would have that right to a safe and legal abortion if they decided to do so. And, and so we built this model of safe abortions at home w without medical supervision under the protocol of the World Health Organization. And today we've built networks across the country to ensure that. Coincidentally, a week after SB8 became law in Texas, the Mexican Supreme Court decriminalized abortion. So we thought it was a good idea to help the women in Texas, right? Uh, because in, in Mexican territory, the, the Texas law does not apply to them. And although our locations border each other, if you just cross the street, we are in Texas. So in certain border cities, we decided to form a cross-border network to support and accompany women uh, from Texas who are seeking free, safe, and legal abortions. So then more women began to arrive from other states, from the United States and well, after the summer, uh, women from all around the country started coming to Mexico for help. We've already developed several logistical ways over the past few months to ensure the safety of abortion and to ensure that women and people in the United States who are seeking them can do so safely. The first are the women who can cross to Mexico, those who have the ability to cross. They can come and they can buy their misoprostol pills at any pharmacy in Mexico and they can return home with their prescription and they can have a virtual accompaniment to accompany them through the procedure. And then there are other women who are crossing into Mexico and we have safe spaces that we arrange for them, for those women who want to do everything in Mexico. And then there are others, and, and these are actually the majority. These are women who write to us, and we send the pills to be hand-delivered to them from here, and then we accompany them through the process virtually. Uh, there are women who are looking for our services, 
And there are also people who want to help. And so we're developing the model that we developed in Mexico 20 years ago, building social solidarity, a society that accompanies the decision of women, and a guarantee of abortions with the insurance of the safety of women so that they do not have to have abortions in restrictive and, and unsafe settings. We are prepared because we know that we can be an option, that more and more women are, are learning about this possibility and they can get care through our services and, and that they have us as an alternative. So, so we are prepared with more medicine and more hands and heads to go along with it. But, but honestly, we don't want to solve America's problem. American society has to solve this problem because it's not a woman's problem. It's, it's a problem of a society that allows women's rights to a legal and safe abortion to be restricted. So we really hope that American society is, is prepared to deal with this problem. When we come back, the story of one woman's border crossing abortion. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
This isn't the first time that American women have turned to Mexico for help. In the 1960s, in particular, many women traveled to Mexico for abortion care they were unable to get in the United States. Women like Marsha Carlin. My name is Marsha Carlin. I'm 77, and I had my abortion when I was 21, um, before Roe v. Wade was passed. In 1966, when Marsha found herself pregnant and did not want to be, she first went to an OBGYN in San Francisco, to a Dr. Lowenstein, but he refused to do the procedure. Dr. Lowenstein didn't know of anybody, any doctor in the United States at that time who would give me an abortion. So he gave us the phone number in Tijuana for this doctor. And it turned out the police had had, a, had made him leave Tijuana. He'd run out of Tijuana because the police were after him. So he was now in Juarez. So we knew we had to somehow get to Mexico. He told us to check in at the El Paso Hotel and then take a taxi to a street corner in Juarez. And then... Um, a guy would pick us up in a, I think it was a red Chevrolet, and we were supposed to act like we knew him. And <laughs> we waited and waited on that street corner, and finally he came by and he opened the door real fast and said, get in. So we got in and he drove around and around and around for at least 20 minutes, drove around the back streets of Juarez and probably trying so we wouldn't know where he was going ended up in a residential neighborhood in a small house and said, come in here, the doctor's in there. And he brought me in and a woman said, sit here and wait for the doctor. So after a while, she brought me back to a bedroom where there was a metal table. And she said, lie on the table, there were stirrups. And the doctor came in and he was going to give me gas and he said, I want you, when I put the gas on, not to move. Don't move at all. But he gave me gas then. So I started having wild dreams. And all of a sudden, all I remember is he pulled the, yanked the gas mask off and said, you moved. And <laughs> I was, <laughs> it's hard to explain how scary that was because I didn't know what he was doing to my body and my uterus. And so he said, I'm gonna have to finish the operation without the gas. And I said, that's fine with me because <laughs> I was scared to death. I wasn't gonna move then. And so he did very quickly finish what he was doing. I guess he was scraping my uterus and, and he said, you're gonna get cramps. And I did, got serious cramps. Anyway, we left and got in the car, the red Chevrolet, and he drove us back again. <laughs> and we got a taxi back to El Paso, and then we got a plane back to San Francisco. Then I saw Dr. Lowenstein that evening, I think, or the next morning, and he said everything looked fine. But a couple days later, I think it was two days later, I started to hemorrhage. I'd never hemorrhaged before. It's, it's, that in itself is a very scary feeling. There's just blood gushing out of your, your, your vagina. 
my friends were very worried about me. And so they said, call Dr. Lowensee, we're gonna take you back to the hospital in San Francisco. So uh, they drove me back. I was curled up in the back seat of the car. I remember this distinctly and just so anxious. First, I didn't know what was happening in my body. And then I thought I was messing up his car with all this blood and all, even though I tried not to mess it up. <laughs> so. We got back and Dr. Lowenstein had talked to me and he said, come right in. And what he did, he put me out that night and just so I'd sleep. And then first thing in the morning, he operated. I think he did a DNC to finish the operation. He told me how scared, how not he wasn't scared, but how worried he was that I could have died from the hemorrhaging. And he also came around, gave me a hug, actually. He said, stand up, I want to give you a hug. And he said, I'm so glad you will be able to have children. And I hadn't even realized that that could be, a, I was worried about, I don't know. I was just frightened more than anything. And he said, you will be able to have children. I'm quite sure I was able to have <laughs> two kids. So, a few years later when it was the right time. Dr. Lowenstein in, in San Francisco had asked me to write up, to type up the experience. So I typed it up before I hemorrhaged. I typed it up when I got back and gave it to him because he wanted to know more to help other women. I sent you a copy of the, the write-up, which I finally found. I hadn't seen it since I gave it to him. That was great. To kind of verify everything I had remembered in my mind. I was most surprised that it ended before I hemorrhaged. I didn't remember that, that it ended like everything was fine, but it wasn't, it was not fine. I just thanked the Lord at the end that everything worked out okay. I was very lucky. I was very, very lucky. It's really hard. It's even harder to know, like, who were the people that crossed the border for abortions. It's very hard to know how many. Um, my guesstimate is in the thousands. My name is Lina Maria Murillo, and I'm a historian. Um, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Iowa in the Departments of Gender, Women, and Sexuality Studies, History, and Latina and Latino Latinx Studies. Through her work, Lina has uncovered evidence of just how long American women have been traveling to Mexico for abortion care. This is a problem with trying to find the history of things that are um, underground and illegal, right? It's always hard to find the sort of like moment when it started. But through oral histories, um, I was able to document um, one abortion clinic in, in Ciudad Juarez uh, in the 19, late 1940s. And um, the person I spoke to, like, worked at his clinic. She was a young woman, worked at, at the Davalos Clinic. He hires another young woman, uh, and he teaches her how to do the procedure. Now, she's not a doctor. She's, she's just an assistant, but she, he teaches her. And then he teaches his son, Mauricio. And then it's, like, kind of radio silence from that, like, that oral history interview that I did in 1940s until the 1960s when a person by the name of Patricia McGinnis, um, along with 
um, Rowena Gurner and Lana Fallon out of the Bay Area begin to really advocate very loudly for um, a repeal of the abortion laws in California. Patricia McGinnis in San Francisco. Um, she's a working class woman from Oklahoma uh, and she's a, a medical technician. Historian Leslie Regan. And she, she is like the first person to start talking to just ordinary people and collects petitions to reform the abortion law and make it easier uh, to get therapeutic abortions. And then she starts talking because she'd had abortions herself. She had performed her own abortion. She had had illegal abortions. She had an illegal abortion in Mexico. And so they create this big, um, not, well, not big, I'll put that in quotes, um, organization um, called the Society for Humane Abortions and then the Association to Repeal Abortion Laws. And through those two organizations, um, they begin to create a list of abortion providers in the U.S.-Mexico border region. What's called the list of providers in Mexico and some in Japan and England, they go and they to, to Mexico and they meet the specialists and they, they inspect the clinics and they set up this whole thing where um, they're, they are like the public health inspectors. And really it was Rowena Gurner who was like the, she was the one who was on top of making sure that everybody was doing things properly. And they ask anyone who gets this information, they provide, you know, a big packet of information of where to go, how to prepare, what to expect, how much it will cost. And they ask them to fill out um, uh, something about the procedure and to bring back information, you know, about the quality of the procedure. Was it safe? Did it appear to be, um, you know, sanitary? Uh, how did they behave? How much did they charge you? So, so they also created, you know, like a consumer <laughs> pressure group because they kept information and they would um, take people off the list as they got bad information. So that's one really important group that was sending people out of the country um, for safe abortions and that they are trying to regulate the practitioners. What's fascinating is that she ends up enlisting those two people that I just mentioned, um, Mauricio Davalos, who is the son of Antonio Davalos, who had the clinic in the 1940s, and this other, other person who's the father taught her. And they're like number one on her list. She's like, I love these people. They know what they're doing. They're amazing. They do great work. And, and sure enough, like as I've looked through, the, um, through their files, some people were like, it was fine, right? Like they didn't want to say too much. This was fine, not a big deal. And other people went to great lengths to kind of tell every detail of what the experience had been like. And um, of the woman provider, people had the most incredible experiences with her. She operated completely underground uh, um, out of a small house. You know, it was an all-women um, all crew. Um, she was assisted by her sister, and then they had like two other women assistants, and um, they would feed the people that would come um, and get abortions. And, you know, one woman wrote like, they did my makeup when I left. I looked prettier after my abortion than I did when I got here. Um, I mean, just, you know, I, I'm, I'm interpreting it as like really thoughtful sort of feminist, feminist grounded care, right? And so the demand for abortion goes up, especially in the 1960s when you've got like women's liberation, right? Is at the forefront of all this. 
Um, and, and so people are demanding greater access to abortion care. And so they go to Northern Mexico to, to get that abortion care. I want to guesstimate thousands of, of people um, went and, and got successfully accessed abortion care from reputable providers in Northern Mexico. We wouldn't have organizations like the Society for Humane Abortions or the Clergy Consultation Service referring people to Mexico if these were not good providers. A young woman dies in Piedras Negras from a, a, a botched abortion. And that creates this massive, like, what, well, what the heck is going on in Mexico? We thought we had done what we could in Tijuana, but now, like, this is spread all across northern Mexico's border. The narrative that these awful abortion mills in Juarez and in Mexico were killing American women, right, was a sort of big story. And it was bringing disrepute to places like like El Paso, right, where people in, in El Paso, Americans in El Paso were ashamed, embarrassed by their Mexican compatriots who were engaging in this unlawful activity. And they interview this one doctor in El Paso and he says, ugh, you know, we can't do anything about our Mexican neighbors. They're just lawless like this. At the same time that people are racializing Mexico, this, uh, you know, um, Sarah Weddington, who goes on to argue Roe v. Wade, you know, she had an abortion in Mexico. She was in, in Austin at the time getting her degree in, in law, becoming an attorney um, at UT Austin. And she's like, you know, here I am in this dusty, dirty, backwards Mexi Mexican town going to get an abortion, right? Like the trope of the like back alley butcher for people in, in the borderlands was Mexico. Like Mexico was where these butchers lived. And this is where they did their butchery, even though there's so much information about non-butchers, right? Like actual providers who are doing incredible work. But it was an, they were an easy fall guy for demanding rights in the U.S. And that's part of the work that, I, that I'm writing about and talking about is the way that this, like, this racialist tropes worked in the favor of like U.S. feminist activists to be able to say, yeah, we're leaning on some of these folks to do the like dirty work of providing access to abortion. I put dirty work in quotes so that we can protect doctors in the U.S., but we'll also use them as scapegoat to say, like, we don't want women traveling to backwards um, unsanitary Mexico to get abortions. We want safe, legal abortions in the U.S. There are doctors who could have performed abortions in the U.S., and some of them did, but for fear of, like, losing their license or fear of being accosted, uh, being known as the abortion provider in their community. They're like, no, but I know somebody who can help you in Mexico um, because we don't care about our colleagues in Mexico, about the way that they're seen or understood in their communities. As the United States embarks on this new era of abortion criminalization, Lena says, if we're willing to pay attention, there is a lot we can learn just by taking a global perspective. One of the lessons from the past for me is really thinking about the arbitrariness of borders and how they have denied people care and how people constantly thwart them anyway. They're all means to control people. The thought that like all, all social justice and survival understanding is gonna emanate from the United States is absolutely incorrect 
we should be thinking about how we're going to join international global coalitions for social justice and racial justice. Not as the not as the ones that are bringing the knowledge, but the ones that are here to learn, right? And so that to me is like a critical fundamental part of what we can learn from history. That we have benefited from care from other countries and other providers in the past, and we will likely need them again. And that racialist tropes and ideologies have no, there's no room for, for that at this particular juncture. Once again, here's Paula Avila Guillen. The United States has been living in a world that was beautiful and it was privileged in terms of autonomy for many. Still, it wasn't the reality for many other states for a while, but at least in, in general, uh, the role protection had a lot of power. And um, in Latin America, we have been in the opposite for many years. And we have been able to survive somehow. We know from a legal point of view, how to make some legal laws better when they are still very restricted. Some of them have been through international standards, the World Health Organization, the UN standards. So, so I think the activists need to look to those standards that we have been trying to create for 20 or 30 years as, as symbols of how you make laws that are still very restrictive a lot more flexible until you change everything. But then also from examples of success, we have had success for the last um, two years. Uh, and even in very restricted environments like El Salvador, uh, where there is a total abortion ban and, and women in El Salvador have been criminalized for obstetric emergencies, for miscarriages and stillbirths, which is something that we are going to see in the United States as well. And, and unfortunately, that is a reality. But we have also just celebrated the freedom of 65 women that we were able to get out of prison. And I think that this is an opportunity for the United States to say, and for the activists, okay, we haven't seen this new reality yet, but there are others who have. Let's bring it on board and, and come in. And I am starting seeing a lot of that already happening, but I think it needs to be more consistent, more effectively, and more, um, and more openness, right, for that. When we come back, what the progress these Catholic countries have made says about our own complicated relationship with religion. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Votes in favor of the proposal, 1,429,981. The vote will lead to the dismantling of one of the strictest anti-abortion regimes in the world. Just south of the border, in one of the most Catholic countries in the world, women's rights activists have scored a major victory. This is a huge step for a widely Catholic country. Much has been made of the fact that several of the countries that have liberalized abortion laws in the past couple of years are largely Catholic. That Catholics can be anything but anti-abortion seems to be a shock. But Catholics and people from all faiths have been in the fight for reproductive rights all along. I am Jamie Manson and I am president of Catholics for Choice. The dominant narrative um, that most people buy into is that all Catholics are opposed to abortion and all Catholics think um, Life begins at conception. Uh, And so that is like the number one myth that we have to bust in our work. Because in fact, uh, abortion is very popular among Catholics in the United States. Uh, More popular actually than the general U.S. population. 68% of Catholics did not want to see Roe versus Wade struck down on Friday. Um, I've seen different, more recent numbers say 64% of Catholics believe abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Uh, And I think one of the most surprising numbers is that uh, one in four abortion patients in this country is Catholic, meaning that not only do Catholics support abortion, they're having abortions at the same rate uh, as everyone else in this country. So abortion is part of the life of the church. Catholics for Choice has a decades-long legacy of working in Latin America, helping liberalize abortion laws there. But now... It's the U.S. that needs the help. We're going to bring in our sisters in Latin America who are from the Catholic for for Choice um, organizations there to come and tell us what we need to know about how to live under a a repressive anti-abortion regime. How did you survive? How did you create networks? How did you avoid the law? Um, You know, and, and it is just a stunning moment for us that the people that we helped, we are turning to to help us navigate us, to be our visionaries, to be our prophets um, in the road ahead. Catholics for Choice actually really predates Roe, not formally, but um, the women who ended up founding the organization were already organizing before Roe. And then uh, really in earnest, formalized uh, after the Roe decision. So the organization is um, just about 50 years old now. 
And its purpose was really to to ask for several things. One is for conversation about abortion within the walls of the church, because there is no room, even at the most liberal Catholic university, where there are other conversations about controversial things, you cannot talk about abortion. So wanting to, to you know, to be able to have dialogue about the issue uh, was, was a very big um big campaign of theirs. Um, and then to embolden the voices of Catholics who already are pro-choice. And for those Catholics who don't know where they fall um, in, in, in what camp, to educate them, you know, not to tell them what to think, but give them the resources the church won't give them uh, to discern what for them is a morally complex issue. In my opinion, for the bishops, this is not about babies. This is not about life. This is really about controlling women's freedom because there is a fundamental idea in Catholicism of gender binary. Uh, They call it gender complementarity, that God ordained men for a very specific role, having that they're supposed to be leaders and take authority. And women are meant to be servants and nurturers and care for the family. And our most essential vocation is motherhood, according to this theology. Pope John Paul II had a special phrase for women. He, he said, we had a feminine genius. And what that really means is our uteruses, our ability to gestate was our genius. And so this is, this is so pervasive. Um, and I think this is the prime mover for these men. Again, these are ostensibly celibate, all male leadership. This is the most radical patriarchy in the world. There's a billion Catholics. They have presence in every country. On, in the globe, uh, in the globe, and and they also have enormous power at the UN, for that matter. And so, they are terrified of women's power and women's freedom, and um, that is what you know abortion is really all about. When you can control your own fertility, you have access to freedom and power. And this is the opposite of what this hierarchy wants. It, they, it, it scares the life out of them. Remember, they do not ordain women. Why on earth would they want women to have access to freedom and power? And also, all of these ideas that we're hearing, life begins at conception, personhood, these are all Catholic theology. <laughs> these are all Catholic theological ideas that suddenly evangelicals believe in, suddenly Mormons believe in. Churches that never believed this, suddenly when it became politically expedient, where they could have a, you know, an, an unholy alliance, uh, these three, these three churches, uh, Catholicism, Mormonism, and Evangelicalism, they saw the political power and clout they would get that they got this prime seat at the Republican table. Uh, it changed everything for them. And so, but again, but these are, these are, you know, to me, very fringe Catholic ideas because most Catholics don't believe them. Uh, that are being codified into civil law. I mean, it is the the the, the grossest uh, infringement on religious freedom, I think, in the history of this nation. Because we have a lot of people of faith, like Jews, who not only support abortion rights, it's required in some circumstances. And so we are really infringing on, on religious freedom of others. In a survey done of Jews in the United States, 83% support abortion access we go back to this value of pikuach nefesh. This value that means the the, um, importance, the value of saving a life. My name is Rabbi Kelly Levy. I am the Associate Rabbi at Congregation Beth Israel in Austin, Texas. And I work with a vibrant, inclusive, social justice-oriented congregation as their Associate Rabbi, but as a major part of the clergy team. 
This is where Judaism diverges from Christianity. In Judaism, we don't believe that life begins at conception. We believe that life begins at first viable breath. So as soon as a child is able to exit the womb and is able to take a first breath and is viable to take that first breath, that is when that life truly begins. So in Judaism, when it comes to abortion, and it comes to the the pregnant person, that individual is the life that is prioritized. And so when it comes to pikuach nefesh, the the value of saving a life, of preserving a life, that is the life that we prioritize. So in a situation where you have a pregnant person who has either had a terrible traumatizing experience that caused them to become pregnant or they find themselves pregnant and know that they cannot mentally or physically carry this child, or they know that they cannot care for this child after the child is born, or they know that they won't be able to endure 40 plus weeks of this pregnancy. That is part of that preserving of the life, of that soul. It's not about the fetus who, according to Jewish tradition, does not have the status as a living person. The Christian theology has often taken over the conversation around faith and abortion. Because so many Jews are are accepting and basically requiring and demanding abortion access, it's not traditionally been something that we've organized around. That's changed in the re- in recent years. The National Council of Jewish Women has a scholar in residence named Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg who focuses entirely on abortion access and actually organizing Jews around this particular effort. One of the things that the the Jewish world has started to change as far as the way we approach this subject is it's actually a violation of our religious freedom to not have access to abortion. Because we fully support abortion access and the rights of reproductive justice, and it is actually it's actually deterring our ability to practice our faith. Because if you go back and look at our text, it says there are certain situations where you absolutely must provide an abortion. And this goes back thousands of years. And by not allowing us that opportunity, that right, we are not actually allowed to practice our religion to its fullness. I grew up in a very conservative, white, evangelical church. So I'm very familiar with a theological framework that's very cut and dry, that things are this or they're not, that God is this or God isn't. I'm Reverend Katie Zay. I'm an ordained Baptist minister, and I'm the CEO of the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, or RCRC as we fondly call it. There is a certain comfort in having a sense of security that if I simply follow these rules, then my life will be wonderful. And I subscribed to that for a long time until I had experiences that disrupted that framework and showed me that I actually didn't have the kind of certainty that I thought that I did. And that required me to do a lot of soul searching around what does it mean to be a faithful person with a different kind of theological framework that allows for nuance and complexity. So I think it's just as much about how we approach those conversations as it is the content. 
And I really try in my work not to fall into debate. What ends up happening is it, we don't talk about the real people who are being impacted. It becomes an, an abstract ideological conversation. It is so wrong when we lose the focus on, on the real human beings in front of us. The way that we talk about abortion, even on the pro-choice side, can often be really stigmatizing. We often talk about only the most extreme cases where a person's bodily autonomy has been violated, or we talk about it as if it's always a difficult decision for people, and that those things are true, but they don't encompass the full spectrum of people's experiences. And I think talking about how abortion can be such a positive thing for people, it can be life-saving for one in lots of different ways, but also it can be a catalyst for really important changes in a person's life. Abortion is a blessing. Access to abortion is a blessing. The ability to make a reproductive decision is a right and a blessing. So as I'm talking to folks who maybe are struggling, I think storytelling is really essential and not just storytelling of other people, but really asking folks, what is your reproductive story? What is your family's reproductive story? It does not take much digging below the surface to hear painful stories of reproductive loss regarding infertility or pregnancy loss or just someone who was never able to create the family that they wanted. There are stories of adoption that are traumatic. Everybody has a story around this. And I think that that can be a way to, to create that heart connection is allowing people to tell whatever their story is. There just isn't space for people to share these things. And I think the first step in healing ourselves and our communities is just holding space for people to share. Another faith-based organization focused on reproductive rights is called SACRED. I am uh, Reverend Kenyatta Chinway. I am the Faith Advocacy Coordinator for Sister Song, the Woman of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. I am also the National Co-Chair for Sacred. We are encouraging brave conversations, um, not just among faith leaders, but faithful people to give voice to those who actually already believe in reproductive rights, health and justice, but feel afraid of what voicing that may cause. Um, so I feel like uh, what Sacred really is trying to do is give people the language um, to stand firm in their faith around this subject. My lived experience um, is what brought me to this work and, and is why I do it. Um, I understand what it's like to be told that your very existence is a sin. If I don't understand anything else, theological interpretation is that, is just that. It is uh, open to interpretation by the, the lens of those who read it. But the one thing that we are pretty much all clear about in terms of our traditions of love is that we are supposed to love one another and we are supposed to be compassionate to one another and we're not supposed to judge one another. If I don't know anything else, that much I do know. And so um, I will always approach uh, any subject from that lens of how can I be compassionate in this moment while someone is navigating 
um, what is best for their lives. Um, and so, and I know that is a direct result of having to navigate um, being queer and black and Caribbean and a woman in a world that said that most of those things were unacceptable. Being introduced to and embracing the uh, framework of reproductive justice really does expand the possibility of understanding the moral good of abortion. We in reproductive justice do believe in the human right for everyone to have a child, to not have a child, the parent, the children that they have in safe, sustainable communities, free from interpersonal and state-sanctioned violence, and to have bodily autonomy. And if you believe in that, if you believe in those tenets, then you understand that bodily autonomy, which is what we're talking about when we're talking about making reproductive choices for our lives, is just as morally sound as having a child, not having a child, and raising the children that you have. It can't be separated out. It can't be made other. Um, and the only people who benefit from it being made other are those who seek to divide for political expediency. And as Jamie Manson shared, the reproductive justice framework has also been helpful for the work Catholics for Choice does in their communities. For a lot of Catholics who have a very rich understanding of social justice, because it's in our tradition and they were raised in it, that is very eye-opening as well. Um, when we really put it in that context that abortion is a decision that affects the entire trajectory of a woman's life. It's not just about bodily autonomy. It's about, you know, ev everything, you know, the every, it's so consequential for every aspect and it intersects with almost every issue of social justice that a lot of Catholics care about. So when you put it in that context, my goodness, um, you see the lights go on um, and you see people realizing, OK, I, I this, you know, I, I, I am I do support abortion access um, and, and I, I found my place in this movement. Again, Reverend Katie Zay. I think that part of being a person of faith is the practice of hope. And I say a practice because it's not a feeling all of the time. It's a discipline. And I've been talking about hope as being something that we hold in community and not just individually. And I think what's so important about holding hope in community is that the vision needs to be informed by the people who are being most impacted by the injustice. And I also think that what the reproductive justice framework has done for me is really identify the larger, what we call white Christian nationalist political agenda that has never been just about abortion, has really been about the control of bodies and maintaining power over our bodies. And so I'm really grateful to the ways that that framework expanded my own understanding that it's not enough to only focus in on any one particular issue, but to really see it within this broader framework of just what it means to be a human being and, and who wants to flourish. We'll be right back. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just 
disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. My name is Sue, and I am a 49-year-old woman from Wisconsin, and I've spent my career in ministry in various different capacities. I am now a single mother of four children. I'm divorced and yeah, that's probably about it. So I was 21. I was in graduate school at a seminary and I was young for my class because I'd done high school three years. I became involved with a fellow classmate who was there as a second career. He had been an attorney, he was 36 years old um, and going through a divorce. And I we I thought I was madly in love. He claimed he was madly in love. And we talked about marriage from the very beginning of our relationship and kids. Um, big part because he told me that he was getting divorced because his wife didn't want children and he really wanted kids. So that was a huge part of that. Um, probably about eight months into the relationship, it got a little rocky and found out probably it was right around Thanksgiving that I was pregnant. And his immediate response was, well, you know what you have to do. And I was floored by that. I thought, well, we've been talking about getting married. We'll get married. And what is, you know, where did that come from? I was just blindsided by that. Immediately started saying, you know, if your parents find out, they will just disown you. They will never let you live that down. So there was just this immediate 
separating me from my family, from my friends, from my loved ones. And we went to a planned parenthood and had, that's where I had my initial pregnancy test where they confirmed that. So I had the abortion. It was a Saturday morning. It was January 6th. And he got me back to his apartment. He took care of me for a day and then dropped me back off at my dorm. And I think just thought, boom, boom, he'd wash his hands of me. I had never told my parents. They knew something was wrong. But I just, I still lived in that. They'll be mad. They'll disown me kind of thing. A couple months later, he sent me a letter on this stationary letterhead from his law firm demanding that I pay him back for the abortion. And at that point, I just, I didn't know where to turn. I just felt lost. And I went to our campus pastor who was fantastic and said, you know, what would help you the most right now? And I said, I think telling my parents. And I drove to my parents that night and they were fantastic. And they, they, yeah, just loved on me. And, you know, I asked them at that point, what would you have wanted me to do? And my mom, who I never thought in a million years would say this, said exactly what you did. You have a life ahead of you. So that was sort of the beginning of my, I think, owning it, acknowledging and owning it. The school, the attorney made a deal with him, basically. I said, I'll give him the money, but then he could never contact me, sort of a an agreement. So I had no contact with him after that. Um, yeah, I think, you know, there's long periods of time where I go, or I don't think about it at all. I have an 18 year old daughter now. So then now I think about it because she's completely riled up about the last few days and I couldn't be prouder for starters, <laughs> but I think young women that I've known along the way, I would never, I would never encourage it, but at the same time, I would never discourage. I think it's such an individual thing. So for any of us to make a blanket statement of right or wrong, none of us have that right to do that <laughs> or to say one way or another for each person. I think at the end of the day, the shame I think I probably did have shame, which I think was completely unfounded. What I did was completely legal. There was nothing illegal about what I did, but then why, why don't I talk about it more freely? And I hate that there's that stigma for anybody to not be able to say, I did this because at the end of the day, I've never thought of it as I killed a human. I've never thought of it that way. I don't believe that whole life beginning at conception. But at the end of the day, it was a very life-giving part of my life. <laughs> and I think for so many women, like how can you not say it was <laughs> to have that second chance and to be able to go live your best life, I think. 
it's that was probably my first experience of never assume what's going on in someone else's life. I think um, it has made me a much more compassionate person, especially in my ministry roles of who are we to judge? <laughs> and I think that's a huge part of it. We're almost at the end of this series and wanted to hear what you think. You can call this number 1-844-479-7883 and leave us a message about how you're feeling or perhaps actions you're taking or even things you've learned or want to share about abortion. Your message might be included in a future episode. Again, that number is one 844 Four seven nine seven eight eight three. Abortion: The Body Politic is executive produced by me, Katie Couric, and was created by a small team led by our intrepid supervising producer Lauren Hansen. Editing and sound design by Derek Clements. Research by Nina Perlman. Production and editing help for this episode from Mary Dew. Translation help from Carla Martinez and Marcy DiPina. And a special thanks to KCM producers, Courtney Litz and Adriana Fazio. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.